The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. Um, well, I just, I'll start with saying I think it's good that we're having this discussion, this meeting on Gramsci, because uh, the ISO hasn't done very much on him or around his ideas. And I think it's uh, absolutely key that we call it the revolutionary ideas of Antonio Gramsci, because in some ways these days it's hard to know whether we're supposed to think of him as a revolutionary or not. And part of the argument of this paper is that he was and he is, and the most important part of his, his legacy, both as a, as a Marxist activist and, and thinker, uh, has to do with his commitment to uh, revolutionary uh, Marxism. But uh, for reasons that I hope this talk will uh, go some way towards explaining, Gramsci's revolutionary Marxism has been obscured by developments, um, a couple of which I'll mention now because I think they're the most important ones, uh, that have really overlaid <coughs> the revolutionary character of his, of his work, of his ideas. And so we've got some excavation to do uh, in, in part. One of these developments that I'll begin by talking about is, is primarily political, has to do with reformist politics, and the other is academic. Um, on the first one, Gramsci has been claimed for some time by various versions of the reformist left as, a, as part of their tradition rather than part of our uh, tradition. Uh, probably the most prominent of these uh, was uh, the development in the 1970s and 1980s that came to be uh, known under the title Eurocommunism. This is the development um, <coughs> in Italy to some extent in France and Spain where the existing communist parties, um, uh, many of them, uh, deliberately distanced themselves from the whole revolutionary tradition, relocated their place in the political uh, terrain they were operating on at basically as, as non-revolutionary reformist uh, uh, organizations um, who looked to electoral politics and reforms from above rather than any kind of project that was rooted in the idea of, of socialism from below and the power of the working class to overthrow uh, capitalism. And that whole Euro-communist phenomenon of the 70s and 80s really claimed Gramsci as their founding theoretical uh, source. Uh, and um, some parts of that, I mean, he was also claimed and has been claimed by other uh, reformist uh, uh, political initiatives, but that was, that was a very prominent one. Um, and I'll just say, since I've just um, uh, been in Italy for a while doing some work, that this lives on in some pretty disturbing and grotesque ways. I brought with me here a, a copy of uh, the Daily Newspaper, which you can still buy. I bought this uh, in, a, you know, in a newsstand in Rome on the 16th of June called L'Unita. And um, underneath, the, uh, underneath the title, uh, or over the title, it says in Italian, uh, daily founded by Antonio Gramsci on the 12th of February, 1924. Um, and th the, this paper has been published under this title since that date. Uh, but it's, how to put it, it's not the paper that Gramsci founded. <laughs> uh, it's gone through, I mean, the history of this newspaper has gone through the history of the Italian Communist Party and and out the other end. Uh, <laughs> it, when the Italian Communist Party became a Stalinist Communist Party, you know, in the 30s and 40s and 50s, L'Unità was the, was the party newspaper and uh, represented a version of Marxism that I think Gramsci uh, would have had nothing to do with. When the turn to Eurocommunism happened under the leadership of Enrico Bellinguer, in the late 1970s, L'Unità became that kind of uh, newspaper. When in 1991, the uh, Communist Party dissolved itself and became the party of the democratic left, L'Unità became the newspaper of the party of the democratic left. As I tell you an anecdote, I was, I, I was actually in uh, uh, Italy <coughs> for part of that year when this happened. And L'Unità was, uh, in addition to buying your daily copy of L'Unità, for a few more 
um, I've forgotten, thousand lira because they hadn't gone on the euro system yet at that time. Um, you could buy a volume, there was an eight volume history of the Italian Communist Party that Munita was selling as part of, I forget, the Monday edition of the paper or the Friday edition of the paper. So you pay a few extra thousand lira and you get volume one, volume two, volume three. And in every copy of Munita, was a big page ad for this history of the Italian Communist Party with a beautiful photograph of, of uh, Gramsci on it. And the slogan that appeared by this was, Da questa storia abbiamo tutti qualcosa da imparare. From this history, we all have something to learn. This was an ad being run by L'Unità during the year in which the Communist Party of Italy was dissolving itself into the party of the democratic left with Gramsci's <coughs> photograph, you know, staring out at you from every copy of the paper. Now the situation has gone uh, even further. The party of the democratic left has dissolved itself into the democratic party. And when I say it's called the Partito Democratico, that people who run it, especially the former mayor of Rome, Walter Veltroni, who used to be an editor of L'Unità, um, is an open admirer of the Clintons and basically thinks that this party, um, you could say in some ways as a kind of remnant of the Italian Communist Party, should have nothing to do not only with Marxism but with anything called socialism. Uh, L'Unità has just been sold. Um, and it was sold, it was sold under conditions uh, overseen to some extent by the head of the Democratic Party, uh, Walter Veltroni. Uh, it was sold to a man named Renato Soru, uh, who's president of the region of Sardinia, which is an irony since that's where Gramsci was born. Um, a businessman and owner of the internet service company Tiscali. Um, that's who owns Lunita. That's who owns the, the newspaper founded by Antonio Gramsci in 1924. And uh, that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying that Gramsci's uh, identity has been, well, more co-opted, doesn't go far enough, does it? It's been taken over by a kind of <coughs> politics that has nothing to, to <coughs> do with it. So that's one thing that we have to kind of recognize and see this discussion as partly an effort to, to break through. The other thing, uh, though, is that, that some of us have to deal with, uh, often annoyingly, is that Gramsci's been celebrated, taken up by academics especially, given the work I do, academics and uh, cultural studies, who really think of him as somebody who um, developed this emphasis on ideological and cultural transformation instead of um, workers seizing control of the means of production as a way of overthrowing capitalism and building a new kind of uh, society. I mean, there are, there are uh, co-workers of mine at Brown University who teach Gramsci every semester and you never see them on a, pro on a demonstration or a, even a meeting about whether we could make a demonstration. <laughs> you know, those people think there's nothing in the Gramsci they know that tells them that they should, you know, even be politically active, much less uh, take revolution in a serious way at all. Um, a book just that some of you may have heard of and some of you may even have read that I think is really characteristic of this academic development is a, a book published by Verso in 1985 written by uh, Ernesto Laclau and Chantal Mouffe called Hegemony and Socialist Strategy. The term hegemony in the title there is probably the single most famous term in Gramsci's uh, theoretical writing and they, uh, Laclau and Mouffe exerted a lot of influence over a whole generation of people who were taught that, uh, you know, Gramsci really uh, is about uh, semiotics and cultural <laughs> studies and not about the revolutionary power of the <coughs> class. So both these developments, and there are others that I'm not going to take the time to go into now, uh, I think really represent distortions of Gramsci's ideas and a repudiation of the political project he gave his life for, literally. Um, at the same time, I want to, you know, argue at the beginning that there are aspects of Gramsci's life as a revolutionary and of his writing that have made these distortions and these kind of cooptations possible. And part of what we need to do is to try to understand that, you know, how, 
how of the of the great figures from the revolutionary tradition why is it why has it been possible to do these kinds of things uh, to and with uh, Gramsci uh, say compared to Trotsky or uh, Lenin or Luxembourg now in Gramsci's case it's especially important to see his ideas in relation to the events of his life and I want to take um, a bit of time now to kind of go through and just construct a sort of basic uh, framework, historical and biographical framework for beginning to do this. Gramsci was born in 1891 on the island of Sardinia. Uh, his family didn't have any money. His father was a kind of minor local official who uh, was imprisoned, probably on trumped up charges. And Gramsci, at the age of 12, was forced <coughs> to begin working 60 hours a week in order to support the family. How he managed to stay in school and work 60 hours a week, I can't tell you, but um, that's what the, what the biographies say. It's really amazing. Gramsci also suffered as a child from tuberculosis, childhood tuberculosis, which stunted his growth and, and disformed, deformed him, his physical development. He was, uh, as an adult, very small and bent, and he regularly referred to himself, um, especially in his letters, as a, as a hunchback, un gobo. He seemed to enjoy almost, uh, you know, uh, using this part of his, his uh, physical identity, often in an ironic and sarcastic way. Mm -hmm. In 1911, he left Sardinia, got a scholarship to study literature and linguistics at the University of Turin. That was a good place for him to get a scholarship to, because uh, not only was the University of Turin, a, a, a good place uh, intellectually for Gramsci to be given his interest in literature and linguistics, but of course Turin by this point was the most important industrial city in Italy and one of the most important industrial cities uh, in Europe. At this time Turin was, had developed uh, a very, very massive uh, car manufacturing industry. The Fiat car factories were located there. Uh, and uh, union organizing and, so, and an active socialist movement was very well along by the time Gramsci uh, showed up as a university student in Turin in the second decade of the 20th century. Gramsci joined the Socialist Party uh, in 1914, and by 1916 he was an editor of the main socialist newspaper. 1917, with the Russian Revolution, Gramsci responded with tremendous enthusiasm uh, to what the Bolsheviks were able to do. Um, and one of the really interesting things about Gramsci's um, um, political thinking early on was his seeing um, not an identity at all, but important connections between Russia and Italy as very unevenly developed and in many ways backward uh, countries. So that the project that the Bolsheviks faced of uh, building uh, revolutionary socialism and a socialist party uh, in a country like Russia spoke to Gramsci's effort to try to figure out how we're going to do this in Italy where you've got a city like Turin with massive uh, industrial factories and a very rapidly developing working class and the whole south of Italy which remained very <coughs> underdeveloped and dominated by, um, by uh, the peasant class. Um, so um, he um, he wrote a lot of articles for the paper of the Socialist Party, Il Grido del Popolo, The Cry of the People, praising the accomplishments of Lenin and the Bolsheviks, and worked really hard during these years in the teens to transmit these political developments in Russia to Italian socialists. He also became involved already in 1917 and 1918 in debates within the Socialist Party over the implications of the Russian Revolution for the situation <coughs> in uh, Italy. Um, in April of 1919, uh, Gramsci and a small group of other revolutionaries inside the Socialist Party launched a new weekly magazine uh, that's been referred to L'Ordine Nuovo, the New Order. And they launched this magazine specifically in response to what was going on in the fiat factories and the automobile industry, because there was beginning to develop in 1919 factory councils, what we call the factory council movement, not exactly identical to the development of the Soviets earlier in Russia, but a lot of similarities. Spontaneous uh, self-organization by the Italian working class 
uh, in Turin and in the north of Italy. And L'Ordine Nuovo really saw itself as the publication of the Factory Council movement. Uh, Gramsci uh, writes about this. He, he wrote a, published an early piece called The Program <coughs> of L'Ordine Nuovo. And in it, he explains that the whole idea of this magazine, uh, quote, developed around the concept of liberty rooted in the actual making of history around the hypothesis of autonomous revolutionary action by the working class. And I'll say, I'll come back to the Factory Council movement in this particular phase in, uh, in Gramsci's life uh, a bit later. Uh, 1920 was the really critical year uh, for uh, uh, the Factory Council movement. April 1920, a major strike uh, across the auto industry uh, breaks out but was isolated by the bosses and defeated. Um, uh, part of, partly because of events coming out of that in September uh, in response to a fiat initiative to lock down uh, the companies to uh, enforce a lockdown because the workers weren't done even though they'd been momentarily <coughs> defeated. The workers really regathered re their force, uh, organized, uh, organized the factory councils into a kind of initiative that took over most of the factories in Turin and operated them on their own uh, without the direction of the bosses and the bosses' managers for a time. Um, the, uh, they began producing cars under the workers' own planning and initiative. Uh, but the Socialist Party and the unions, there were more than two million auto workers uh, in the unionized auto workers in and around Turin at this time. Uh, were divided <coughs> over how to carry the struggle <coughs> forward and uh, eventually that too was uh, isolated uh, and defeated and so you come out of 1920 with this tremendous explosion of self-activity by the Italian working class from below and yet um, uh, really nothing substantial or decisive to show for it. That's the backdrop for the founding of the uh, Communist Party in 1921. In the wake of the defeat of the Factory Council movement and what had happened the previous year, Gramsci and other militants, revolutionaries inside the Socialist Party broke away, formed the Communist Party of Italy as part of the Second International. Uh, by this point, Gramsci was in regular contact, direct communication with Lenin and the Bolshevik uh, leaders communicating with them about the Italian situation, um, very, very developing a very, very close uh, connection. Unfortunately, for workers and socialists in Italy, Mussolini's fascist movement had already accumulated a lot of momentum by 1921. They were waiting in the wings, and the Italian left, including the newly forming Communist Party of Italy, was divided about how to respond. The party got big quickly, I mean just on paper. At the second Congress of the Communist Party of Italy in 1922, they registered 43,000 uh, people uh, at the second Congress. But that in some ways, I mean it both shows the appeal of the new party, but the, the strength of the party was inadequate to dealing with the situation in front of them. Uh, a defeated factory council movement on the one hand, and the, pro you know, the, the necessity to figure out what to do next, and uh, the looming fascist threat. Um, Mussolini's March on Rome, I'm sure a lot of you know this, happened in October of 1922. Um, arrest warrants were issued for Gramsci and um, many other uh, communist and uh, revolutionary leaders. Uh, Gramsci was not in Italy at that time. He had gone in May to Russia um, as uh, the new Communist Party delegate to the Comintern. And he spent all the most of 1922 and 1923 <coughs> in Russia. Very, very interesting period of his life to read about. Actively participating uh, in meetings of the Comintern, actively engaged with, in discussions and debates um, with Bolshevik leaders, uh, also receiving medical treatment, which he badly needed. Medical treatment better than he could get uh, in Italy. 
it's also a particular interest to me, I don't know if it will be to you, to know that um, Trotsky, Trotsky invited Gramsci to write a note on Italian futurism and included it in the first Russian edition of Literature and Revolution, um, which suggests, among other things, the kind of communication and connection uh, across many different fronts that uh, Gramsci had with the Bolsheviks at this time. Um, Gramsci didn't immediately return to Italy. He went to Vienna, and it was actually when he was living in Vienna uh, in uh, early 1924, I don't quite know how he brought this off, how he founded L'Unità from Vienna, but he did it uh, along with the help of his comrades. <coughs> they launched the new paper. Um, it was called L'Unità, Unity, not only because to, to, to proclaim the importance of building a unified working class, but also to <coughs> announce the project of building a united front to confront the fascists. And so a big part of Jams, uh, uh, Gramsci's political work in 1924-1925 was to make the case for building uh, a, a broad, strong, united front um, against the ultra-left faction that had developed by this time within the Italian Communist Party, led by Amadeo Bordiga, who, which <coughs> Bordiga, you may have come across, he figures fairly prominently in Lenin's uh, left-wing communism and infantile disorder. Bordiga felt that uh, any kind of united front, any kind of connection, formal connection of that kind with the groups outside revolutionary socialism was a compromise and a forsaking of the revolutionary project. I mean, a completely disastrous as well as infantile uh, <laughs> position to take, I think, confronted with Mussolini and what was going on in Italy. Um, and ev eventually Gramsci won, but it was, um, it, it was uh, a very tense and complicated time, those, those middle years of the, of the 1920s. January 1926, uh, obviously, the Communist Party of Italy couldn't meet openly in Mussolini's Italy. They held a, a secret uh, conference in the uh, French city of Lyon. And um, Gramsci's leadership uh, in the party, his positions uh, were affirmed and are very, very importantly represented in a document known as the Lyon Theses uh, that came out of of this conference, they're not, they weren't written by Gramsci only, they were written partly with his uh, comrade uh, Palmiro Togliatti uh, at this time. That I'm, I'm, later on in the talk, I'm gonna quote pretty substantially some passages from the Leon Theses because they, they represent Gramsci's thinking at a very pivotal moment <coughs> in his career. And generally, I would say that although I agree that the Gramsci of the prison notebooks is very important us to study and to think about and figure out how to read against the grain of the reformist and academic reading of them. You've also, if you're going to think about Gramsci, you've got to get hold of and read some of this writing that he did in the earlier 1920s, you know, around the moment of the Factory Council movement, around the founding of the, of the Communist Party. Get hold of and read some of the sections from the Leon Theses because they, they represent um, for many reasons that I'll say a bit more about, aspects of Gramsci's thinking that you can't see, certainly not directly uh, and immediately and embedded in actual struggle in the prison notebooks for obvious uh, reasons. Another thing I'll just mention briefly, I'll come back to this a little bit later. Um, in October of 1926, Gramsci, um, comes to be very preoccupied with the emerging debate within the Central Committee of the Communist Party as the left opposition headed by Trotsky begins to, to openly uh, make itself evident and oppose the Stalinist uh, takeover. And that's a very complicated moment for Gramsci's, uh, for Gramsci himself. It was complicated for him and for our uh, appraisal of him. And, uh, Gramsci um, uh, momentarily sided with the Stalin-Bukharin line on socialism in one country, mainly, I think, because he was terrified that this split was going to shatter the Bolshevik party apart, which in some ways uh, it did. 
but the least of the consequences of this for what the um, he and his comrades were doing in Italy, I think, seemed almost uh, unbearably threatening to, to him at the time. And his, I just would invite you to get your hands on some of the writing that, also the recognitions, they're very clear recognitions, I think, in Gramsci that he understood the importance and the force of what Trotsky and the left opposition were doing. I think he began to see the emergence of the need for that uh, even as early as late 1924-1925. 8th of November 1926, Gramsci was arrested along with most of the other um, CP leadership, uh, initially sent to a prison on the island of Ustica near Sicily, um, eventually transferred to Milan and then to Rome um, brought to trial in June 1928 and sentenced by a fascist judge who said some famous words and I'm going to read them first to you in Italian just because there's something about the sound of this to me in Italian. Uh, you will you'll probably have heard the English translation of it. Per vent'anni dobbiamo impedire a questo cervello di funzionare. For 20 years we've got to stop this brain from working. <laughs> the, um, the, period, the period of Gramsci's subsequent imprisonment is truly horrifying to read about. I don't know how much uh, you've read about the details of Gramsci's imprisonment, but he was sent to a prison in a place called Turi di Bari. Bari is in Puglia on the southeast coast of Italy. He was sent there in a railway cattle car which uh, kept stopping and being dislocated into sidings. It took them two weeks uh, to take these prisoners to, uh, in, the, in the high Italian summer, you know, 95, 100 degrees. Um, he was chained in this cattle car so that uh, he could neither lie down nor stand up. Uh, his health, which was already very uh, precarious, meant that he arrived at the prison uh, in a state of physical collapse. And throughout his imprisonment in Turiribari, he was given just enough rice every day to keep him alive. That's what he, he lived on. And um, was subjected recurrently to sleep deprivation and various kinds of mental torture. Twice in 1931 and 1933, he was near death. Yet, between the years 1929 and 1933, he was physically able to write and somehow given paper and the wherewithal to write, and he filled 32 notebooks, 2,848 pages of writing. That's the basis of the quaderni di carcere, the prison uh, notebooks. Um, and these, these have, as I say, they've come to be known to us as the sort of main body of Gramsci's writing. They're tremendously important. Every word of them, we have to assume, was read by his fascist jailers. And so the prison notebooks had to be written in a kind of code, um, avoiding all direct references to Marxism and often uh, uh, carried out in Gramsci also writes about current political issues under the guise of writing about Italian history. I mean, there's a whole section called The Modern Prince that is, is really and truly about Machiavelli. I mean, Gramsci is very interested in Machiavelli. But it also is a section, one of many sections um, uh, of the prison notebooks that function uh, in terms of a kind of historical allegory of code, writing about the present in terms of the past. I think it's also important to recognize that Gramsci in prison was able to write more openly, more directly about theoretical and cultural issues than directly about immediate political struggle. And that's an important thing to consider when you ask yourself, how has it been possible that uh, you know, these co-workers of mine at Brown University have been able to claim the prison notebooks as supporting their <coughs> kind of stuff, you know? It's, uh, it has to do with the, the kind of writing this is and the circumstances it was produced. In 1936, uh, Gramsci was so ill uh, uh, that he was finally transferred to a clinic back in Rome. Um, 
almost uh, very near death, the fascist shortened his original sentence. Uh, he died on April 27, 1937, a week after his shortened sentence, the sentence that his original 20 years was shortened. Uh, a week after that sentence was up, uh, Gramsci died, April 27, 1937. So looking at Gramsci's political ideas in this context, I think there are two broad considerations to keep in mind. One, we can't confine ourselves, as I've said before, to the famous writing in the prison notebooks. We really need to get, get more familiar with Gramsci's writing of the late teens and early, uh, early 20s, when he was able to be uh, active and play a leading role in um, the uh, too long delayed and too late developed project of building a revolutionary Marxist party in Italy uh, in the circumstances that he found himself in. And when he was actively engaged with the Bolsheviks and the activities of the Second uh, International. I think that, that earlier writing of Gramsci is really uh, key. And I think also we have to understand the emphases and the recurrent topics of the prison notebooks in relation not only to their being written in a fascist prison <coughs> under fascist surveillance, um, but um, even the kind of topics that Gramsci, under the, those circumstances, was able to take up. This doesn't mean that we attribute every problem or ambiguity or failure of adequate development simply to these conditions. I'm not saying that any time somebody comes up with a problem or a weakness in Gramsci's thought that, oh, you know, Britain, Turi di Bari, prison. I'm just saying it means that we have to assess these aspects of Gramsci's writing, the weaknesses along with the strengths, uh, in the context of the realistic circumstances in which he uh, found himself. So the, um, uh, Chris Harmon uh, wrote an important and I think still very helpful piece about Gramsci, really a double article uh, in the International Socialist Socialism Journal in 1976 called, called Gramsci versus Eurocommunism. And he says there something that I very much agree with. The most developed single area, the most developed single area of Gramsci's thought concerns the fight to develop a working class, a revolutionary working class consciousness. And the shape that this part of Gramsci's intellectual work takes organizes itself around this concept of hegemony. And so I want to go through that now, talk about it, talk about what I think it is, what I think it's not, mm -hmm. uh, and relate it to two or three other uh, key ideas. First of all, what, what Gramsci um, is doing in developing this idea of hegemony is basically an account of ideological struggle as a part of the broader project of building revolutionary working class consciousness uh, in the Italian context, not only in the Italian context, but I think that obviously <coughs> matters especially to him. So he uses, in using the term hegemony, we have to begin by note, he's taking a term traditionally used to talk about power relationships between nations and international relations and using it to talk about class rule, using it to talk about power relationships between classes. And to do this, Gramsci talks about, he begins by, talk, he, he makes a basic distinction between political society and civil society. It's a <coughs> distinction always uh, needs to be grasped in terms of the interconnection, but we'll begin with the distinction. Political society is about the way under capitalism, the ruling class, the bourgeoisie, rules through the state as an organ of class rule through co coercion or the threat of coercion. And Gramsci is very, very clear about this. And Gramsci's concept of the state is very indebted to Lenin's <coughs> concept of the state, state and revolution, and very consistent with it. The bourgeoisie rules, the bourgeois class rule is the, the, takes the form of state coercion uh, and, and the threat of coercion. <coughs> but it doesn't, then Gramsci goes on to say, it doesn't only rule through the state and through coercion. It also rules in terms of civil society through ideas, through, it, through a set of ideas that enable 
uh, the bourgeoisie, the ruling class, to rule with the consent of the oppressed classes at the level of civil society, at the level of education, at the level of religion, at the level of a whole range of cultural practices through which the dominant ideas of the ruling class have this um, effect on the dominated uh, classes, not instead of the rule through the state, but alongside it and with it. So hegemony is Gramsci's term, first of all, for class rule that is based on the consent of the dominated classes, as well as on the co coercion of those classes through which the military power of the state enforces ruling class control of the means of production uh, and the accumulation and control of wealth. Consent, I think, for Gramsci doesn't mean that the working class or the peasantry, but particularly the work working class, are entirely passive and never struggle against the ruling class and have no ideas or no consciousness in antagonistic relationship. It just means that the basic frame of beliefs that tend to dominate most members of most dominated classes, including uh, the working class, or the ideas of the, of the ruling class. I think he's basically taking up Marx's perception that at any moment in history, the dominant ideas are the ideas mm -hmm. of the ruling class, and how is the emancipation of the working class, which must be the act of the working class itself, going to be possible if the ideas of the revolutionary class are so, uh, so much framed within the ideas of the ruling class. That's the fundamental problem, I think, that Gramsci's whole theory of hegemony comes out of. But hegemony is also important, not only for Gramsci, more important even for Gramsci uh, in explaining how it's going to be possible to build a working class hegemony or a counter hegemony, as we sometimes refer to today. Um, how, is this, how, is, how is the working class going to be able to develop uh, a transformation of the way it thinks about itself in relationship to the social and political and economic circumstances it finds itself in. So the struggle for socialism <coughs> includes ideological struggle and political education has to include that, through which the working class gradually builds a counter-hegemony, an alternative worldview that enables workers to break from the ruling class culture and social order that they are taught to accept as natural, inevitable, just the way things are. That's the, that's the basic Gramscian project, I would say, around uh, hegemony. It also, however, includes other things. It, it includes not only this uh, ideological self-transformation of the working class itself, it includes, as part of that, the building of counter-hegemonic alliances with other oppressed classes, very much along the lines of the United Front <coughs> model that Gramsci learned a lot from Trotsky about. It's very, very consistent, I think, with Trotsky's argument for the, uh, for the United Front. One last pair of terms that go along with Gramsci's hegemony, uh, I don't think actually they're the most important terms, but they uh, are often, that you often find them being brought up in discussions uh, around Gramsci's ideas. War of position and war of maneuver. Gramsci used this pair of terms to talk about the relationship between um, war position has to do with the building of working class, an independent, autonomous working class consciousness and culture, uh, sense of itself as a class, organization in preparation for the actual struggle uh, in the workplace, the actual struggle at the level of, of control of the economic means of production. The war of maneuver is when that actual war comes about, when, when, when it's actually engaged. And I just want to point out that Gramsci uses the term war about both these terms. So don't let anyone ever tell you that war of position has nothing to do with revolutionary socialist struggle. Uh, Gramsci wouldn't have called it war of position. <laughs> <laughs> so a little bit more, I mean, that, that's what I have basically to say in the talk about, about hegemony. There are a lot of other questions to go into, I guess, in the discussion. But just a little bit more about, about this is, I think this is so important, on uh, Gramsci on state, you know, state rule through coercion, uh, the, 
you know, what Lenin says about the bourgeois state and, um, and state and revolution. Gramsci's interest in political education and ideological formation and the war of position was never for him part of a reformist rejection of economic struggle, a rejection of, of um, building uh, that kind of militancy in the workplace and eventually the armed confrontation with the coercive power of the existing capitalist state. It was never part of that. Um, um, Harman puts it well, I think, when he says, Gramsci never suggests, even in the present notebooks, that the struggle for hegemony can by itself solve the problem of state power. Armed insurrection remained for Gramsci the decisive moment of struggle. And uh, I'll just read one quotation from, actually, from the prison notebooks, from the section of it called The Modern uh, Prince that uh, um, uh, underscores and bears this out. Gramsci writes, the decisive element in every situation is the force permanently organized and pre-ordered over a long period. Therefore, the essential task is that of paying systematic and patient attention to forming and developing that, this force, rendering it ever more homogeneous, compact, conscious of itself. That, to me, is really the essence of Gramsci's sense of the connection between ideological struggle, you know, the battle for hegemony, and its relationship to uh, armed struggle. The, the, the war of maneuver. <coughs> Another uh, passage, this one from something usually referred to as the Athos Lisa report. This is a, this is a, comes from a conversation uh, Gramsci had when he was near the end of the time when he was actually in prison, probably the last formulated uh, statement he gave of his sense of, of the, uh, the political way forward. Um, given events in the mid-1930s in Italy and elsewhere. Uh, the violent conquest, he says, of state power <coughs> necessitates the creation by the party of the working class of an organization of the military type. Next time you <laughs> professor comes in, <laughs> I'm arming you here with a set of <laughs> quote, I mean, I don't want to copy them down, but look them up or email me and I'll. The necessitates the building of, by the party of the working class of an organization of the military type capable of wounding and inflicting grave blows on the bourgeois state at the decisive moment of struggle. That's Gramsci in, uh, in 1936. Um, and as Harman uh, points out in his article, the battle for hegemony is never simply for Gramsci an ideological battle uh, Gramsci returned to the experiences of the Factory Workers' Council, actually, in several par parts of the prison notebooks in order to illustrate the convergence of Marxist theory and the formation of a working vanguard party around that theory <coughs> and spontaneous workers' struggles. Um, and one more um, quotation here from the prison notebooks. The unity between spontaneity and conscious leadership or discipline is precisely the real political action of the subaltern classes. Workers struggle spontaneously against their bosses. This is me now, not Gramsci. Workers struggle spontaneously <laughs> against their bosses in the boss's state. But for the struggle to succeed, Gramsci shows, for it to succeed decisively, workers need to be conscious of their economic power and historical circumstances as part of a process through which they break from the whole ruling class worldview and become aware of themselves as the class that can remake society in their own interests. The last section about Gramsci's ideas I want to focus on. Uh, can I keep going for a few more minutes? Sure, absolutely. It has to do with Gramsci's ideas about the party. And I guess, you know, the, the starting point here needs to be that uh, we have to say, historically, the recognition that, that in the wake of the defeat of the Factory Council movement initiatives in 1920, a whole new kind of party had to be built. But it got underway too late. No one was more conscious of the too lateness of it than Gramsci himself, or that he, than he became in the course of the 1920s. Um, and, um, and, but, but even early on in Gramsci, there's this very uh, keen interest in and distinct sense 
of the kind of party the Bolshevik party was, and that that was the kind of party that the Italian comrades needed to build, whatever the obstacles they were facing, both in order to carry <coughs> forward the class struggle and also and especially in the face of the fascist, uh, in the fascist threat. So that's the, I think that's the basic framework we're dealing with here. Now, um, Harman is right, I think, to say that it's too bad that only after the defeat of factory worker councils uh, take over in 1920, did Gramsci really see clearly the, the need to form this kind of homogeneous revolutionary party. And also, I think Gramsci's right, um, Harman is right to say that Gramsci's writings around the immediate time of the factory council defeat don't really yet fully grasp, say, in the way that Lenin and Trotsky grasp, came to grasp, the connection, say, between the Soviets and the kind of party that was needed. Gramsci grasped that, but more externally, I think, more from the outside in the initial way. So later on, he comes to see exactly what his own and his comrades' limitations had been at that moment. We have not thought of the party, he writes, as the result of a dialectical process in which the spontaneous <coughs> movement of the revolutionary masses and the organizational and directive will of the center of the party converge. And he, he comes to see this very clearly, but, uh, but late, unfortunately late. A couple of passages here from the Lyon Theses about the party. The defeat of the working class in the factory council struggles of 1919-1920, he says, was due to the political, organizational, tactical, and strategic deficiency of the party of the workers. As a result of this, the proletariat did not succeed in putting itself at the head of the insurrection of the great majority of the population. What was needed was a revolutionary party prepared to put to the proletariat and its <coughs> allies the problem of the insurrection against the bourgeois state. The Communist Party had to demonstrate the impossibility of the regime installed by fascism being transformed into any kind of liberal and democratic sense. That's partly, those illusions were around in the 1920s. That whatever Mussolini was like in the beginning, that that, that kind of thing could somehow be transformed into, uh, into a, different, a different kind of political thing. Uh, and Gramsci's saying that the, the communists needed to see more decisively their job was to explain to everyone that that was, that was impossible. Uh, and that um, the regime installed by fascism couldn't be transformed into a liberal and democratic uh, one without a mass struggle that must inexorably develop into civil war. Um, and then this also from the Lyon Theses, we assert, this is we because Gramsci and Togliatti are, um, I think Gramsci is definitely the decisive voice here, but um, his comrade Togliatti, at this stage his comrade, uh, uh, were, were drafting this together. We assert that the capacity to lead the class is related not to the fact that the party proclaims itself its revolutionary organ, but to the fact that it really succeeds as part of the working class and linking itself with all the sections of that class and impressing upon the masses a movement in the direction desired <coughs> and favored by objective conditions. Only as a result of its activity among the masses will the party get the latter to recognize it as their party and winning a majority and only when this condition has been realized can it presume that it is able to draw the working class behind it? That's Gramsci in 1926. And whatever, the, whatever might be said by way of Gramsci's limitations or weaknesses and really seeing early on the connection between the factory council movement and the formation of the party, what he came to understand about it, I think goes a long way and uh, is really, really, really important for our tradition to hold on to and, and to integrate along with the other great uh, revolution, revolutionary socialist uh, positions and, and articulations that we, that we look to. So I'll just conclude on this. There, there are a whole series of weaknesses. We can take these up um, in the discussion that are often uh, cited as part of Gramsci's legacy. The most famous piece of writing about these weaknesses is Perry Anderson's article, The Antinomies of Antonio Gramsci's published a long, long piece in New Left Review in 1977. Uh, important piece of 
writing. Uh, if you're interested in Gramsci, you should definitely read it. I, I have a fundamental disagreement with it because I think it takes the whole set of distinctions that Gramsci developed in, around the concept of hegemony and treats them as if there was no kind of sustained dialectical interaction between civil society, political society, war position, <coughs> war maneuver. Um, not that there aren't difficulties at times in the detail in which, for instance, Gramsci is able to articulate the relationship between economic struggle and ideological self-transformation by workers. But that, but that in a basic principled way, Gramsci saw that connection dialectically, I think is something that Anderson really uh, underestimates. The problem about uh, Gramsci's able to figure out the right thing to do in 1925, 1926, with the challenge being posed to the rise of Stalin by the left opposition is definitely something we have to face. I think Chris Harmon writes well about this in Gramsci versus uh, Europe Communism. You should take a look at it. And I also would just say I think Harmon is, is helpful in, in formulating the limitation uh, in, in Gramsci's writing in this way. It's, it's about a kind of failure to show the real interrelationship in a sustained way between a particular economic situation and political and ideological struggles of the people it affects. And he's talking there mainly about the Gramsci of the prison notebooks. That is, the Gramsci completely, not only, you know, under the conditions of that prison, but removed from actual um, activity. But it's, it's an important boundary, I think, in, in, uh, to, uh, to recognize in Gramsci's writing. Still, I'll just end by saying Gramsci was a revolutionary Marxist of great brilliance and tremendous courage who analyzed in distinctive ways the processes through which workers come to develop their own independent ideas and identity and their unique potential for overthrowing capitalism and building a truly revolutionary society. I mean, the words that you've heard me uh, quote today from Gramsci, I think, have a lot to offer us as revolutionary socialists now. They show that Gramsci's political ideas are fundamentally at odds with the reformists and the academics who keep trying to cite him for their own interests. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org.